today, the last Sunday of the church year, was originally established as Christ the King Sunday, which now sounds highly anachronistic, outdated language announcing a dead concept. Monarchies have been out of favor for a long time, having succumbed to the advance of democracy. So kingship as such seems dated, patriarchal too. So more recently, this day has been referred to as reign of Christ. Christ the King wasn't introduced into the liturgical calendar until 1925, when Europe was in massive disarray following World War I and rapacious colonialism still ravaged much much of the globe. Less than 15 years later, the world was engulfed in World War II. After that finally ended, no one was clamoring for a return to monarchy, despite the sweet antics of European royalty. But you know, our scriptures are filled to the brim with talk about kings and queens and kingdoms. And as if to underscore the point, remember the image in our apse mosaic. That's King Jesus sitting on a throne. Who does that speak to today? It certainly works within the artistic and architectural program of our space, but on our own, we wouldn't dream up the image of a king today to express our spiritual moment, I don't think. Still, the image haunts our tradition. Christmas stories tell us Jesus was born of the house and lineage of David, the righteous king of Israel. And as the Gospels report, that's the question the Roman governor Pontius Pilate asked Jesus when he stood trial for sedition. Are you king of the Jews? Eventually, democracies answered the question of political authority by stipulating the people should hold it. And they would choose their leaders who would exercise power on their behalf for a limited time. That way, political authority could be temporized. In order for that to work, the people had to have confidence that the system was reasonable and trustworthy to produce competent outcomes. Evidently, an experiment still very much in the making. No. Citizens entrusted authority to a democratic process instead of a genetic lineage of monarchs that produced wildly divergent results. In the worst case scenario, a bad president would last only a few years, whereas a lousy monarch could last a generation or more, dribbling forward through incompetent offspring. Throw in religious devotion for the divine right of kings, and the stage is set for a particularly noxious outcome. Democracies have attempted to pull apart the tangle of religion in politics. Our nation is a prime example. We see some really egregious expressions of that struggle today. But, but you know, I don't want to bog down here in the mire of white evangelicalism. Still, we cannot escape this problem by saying our faith has nothing to do with politics. Not when we have that picture of a king up in our mosaics looming over all else. As our friend Christopher Morris has pointed out, Jesus is Lord was the first creed of the early Christians. It sounds like a great affirmation, which it is. But proclaimed in first century Jerusalem, 
it also rang with the great denial, Caesar is not Lord. In other words, to say Jesus is Lord was an act of sedition, potentially. It was siding with Jesus and all that he stood for over temporal rulers of the day. Of course, with the resurrection, the idea of Jesus as Lord ascended into the spiritual stratosphere, elevating him into lordship over all creation, all things. That accounts for our stylized picture of him in our mosaics. But we might say, well, so what? What does that even mean to sharp 21st century cynics? Jesus gives a clue in our gospel lesson. His words are declamatory, but have the ring of a parable. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. To the ones on his right hand, the sheep, the king will say, Come, you who are blessed of my father, for I was hungry, and you fed me, thirsty, and you gave me drink, a stranger, and you welcomed me, naked, and you gave me clothing. Whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And then to those on his left, he will send away, saying, You gave me no food or drink, nor did you welcome or visit me. Whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do to me. Now notice that Jesus does not privilege political tribes here, nor does he privilege one family, one nation, one race, one gender over another. Notice too that there is nothing here about creeds and doctrines. And I should emphasize that this is the only description of the so-called last judgment in the New Testament. The key ingredient to the Lord's judgment boils down to something compellingly simple. He privileges the least among us, the poor, the hungry, the thirsty, and the imprisoned. But there's more. He not only privileges the least, but he says that to look them in the face is to see Jesus himself. It's an intensely personal revelation, personal and relational, which really makes quite a lot of sense given his earlier command that above all else, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Here's a recurring theme at Christ Church. Love is as love does. Love is principally an action verb, not a feeling. Feelings may accompany an action, but love is as love does. And this, this remains a very, very difficult lesson for us, which is why we repeat it so often. And when Jesus says that we're to love not only our families and friends, but our enemies as well, we feel an inward rebellion. Jesus' Lordship is unlike anything the world has yet experienced. Even professed Christians have had a hard time accepting the ramifications over the years, given our propensity to privilege our biases and prejudices. We too participate in the slicing and dicing of our humanity. We privilege our own theological point of view, of course, 
whatever it might be. Historically, we've separated people into those who have right theologies, right religious allegiances, not to mention uh, right political party affiliations. Our news is saturated with stories about all of the ways we slice and dice up the human community. Generally, the last thing on our minds is wondering how we can love better. That's why this passage from Matthew is so sharply striking and why Christians can become overly distracted by much lesser matters and thereby miss Christ in the homeless poor, or for that matter, anyone else we ignore or abhor. You can see that if we were to follow the pattern Jesus sets forth here, all humans would share the same relative standing, that our collective life would be structured around the God-given dignity and value of every human being. Up on the throne in our mosaics, Jesus can seem distant and remote. Sometimes that distance can be oddly comforting in the I've got the whole world in my hands sort of way. At least I have found it so. But if we really want an intimate encounter with him, then we bring our eyes of faith to see the sick, the hungry, homeless, oppressed, and imprisoned in person. Look into the face of one of the least, the vulnerable, the weak, the children, and see the face of God. This instruction shapes the ministry of Christ Church. Of course, we want to provide a wonderful center of spiritual nurture, worship, and community, but we also seek to see the face of Christ in others. It's what drove our decision some years ago to establish another spiritually rooted beachhead in Washington Heights, working primarily with immigrant children and families under the banner of breaking the back of poverty in a zip code. That's why we built a church and community center in a desperately poor community in Cartagena, Colombia, feeding many families and children suffering food insecurity, and why we created a microfinancing program, promoting economic stability for budding entrepreneurs. It's why we have purposefully extended our hospitality to LGBTQIA persons, and why we see anti-racism as a central obligation for faithful Christians. In all of these ways, we seek to see the face of our King and Sovereign Lord. Working with the poorest of the poor, Mother Teresa of Calcutta said, What we desire is not a class struggle, but a class encounter in which the rich save the poor and the poor save the rich. In a mystical way, then, rich and poor are nearly interchangeable terms inviting intimate human community. Friends, the key is to recognize the face of Christ in the other. Mm -hmm.